Hello, and welcome to Calming the Chaos podcast, where we talk with people around the world who can help you find peace in a chaotic world. I'm your host, Tracy Canella, licensed mental health counselor, certified eating disorder specialist, and advanced clinical hypnotherapist. Calming the Chaos podcast is for those who want self-help resources and education. It's not a substitute for counseling or psychotherapy. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thanks so much for listening. And now, let the chaos begin. In this episode of Calming the Chaos, I am here with Spencer Bishens, and this guy is a disability expert. He has worked with the Social Security Administration for um, more than 10 years. He's written a book, he's processed claims, and he's also worked on the adjudicating side of disability. So he knows all things disability. If you have a disability, you want to know more about the disability system in the United States, how it works. If you have any questions at all, we're going to try and cover it here on this podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce our guest now, and we're going to talk about the disability system in the U.S. Welcome, Spencer Fishens. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This is a topic that really interests me. I used to be a voc rehab counselor. That was my first counseling job. And so I worked with a lot of people who had injuries on the job. And, and we, our job was to see if they could get back to gainful employment. We worked with the medical people, psychologists sometimes. So I'm really excited to have this conversation about disability. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about you and your history and how you got started doing this work? Sure. Uh, after law school, uh, I worked in the private sector for a couple of years, and uh, I started in 2008, which was not the greatest time to be entering the American job market, right. and the legal field was no exception. So it took a while to get my first like real solid career position, um, and at that time, I was just kind of applying for everything. And social security is the one that stuck. So uh, people ask me, how did you end up in disability? And uh, my answer is by complete accident. And, uh, but then I stayed almost 11 years um, and I wrote almost 2000 disability decisions for social security judges during that time. And I reviewed a few thousand more on appeal. So I have a pretty good sample size um, so the things that I talk about in the book about the process and the traps to look out for and all that, um, I have a, a, a pretty good sample size to make that judgment on. Uh, one other thing I want to say, though, up front is you talked about a moment ago that you worked with people who had become injured on the job. But um, I just want to point out that so many disability applicants apply with mental health impairment allegations, either as the primary impairment or perhaps as a secondary impairment. If someone's injured and they're not working for over a year, people become anxious, they become depressed, there may be some PTSD. So um, the, I would say the majority of applications have mental health impairments alleged. And so it's important for people, even if you, you haven't been physically injured, 
to understand that if you've paid into the system, those benefits are there for you as well, regardless of what your impairment is. Mm. Yeah, I, and I am aware of that. It, it, I think it's a little bit more of a difficult process to get a mental health illness, or uh, it's not an injury, but a disability, uh, because you have to prove that it, impa it impairs your ability to do your job. Is that correct? Well, not your former job. Um, it's even worse than that, since we're talking about chaos. Social security standard is you have to show that you can't do any full-time work in the national economy. So like, let's say you used to work in a warehouse, just because a, a lot of people who get injured tend to work in warehouses, uh, and you become injured. Well, if you're under the age of 50, you can't just show I can't go back to work at the warehouse. You have to show you can't be a cashier or an eyeglasses repairer or, you know, things that don't involve a lot of strenuous lifting and physical activity. Mm -hmm. And that can be really difficult. Um, but the other thing I think that you're getting to is that a lot of physical impairments, particularly musculoskeletal impairments like back injuries and knee injuries, there's just really good evidence for those, right? MRI, x-ray, surgical reports. It's really easy to see if someone has a torn ACL or disc degeneration in the back. Uh, whereas with um, what I call non-visible impairments, whether they be physical or mental health, uh, they're much harder to prove. Um, some non-visible physical impairments may be uh, a lung disorder, a heart condition, HIV, fibromyalgia. Those can be just as difficult to prove sometimes as mental health impairments. Mm -hmm. And uh, but but you still qualify if you have those impairments and they impact your ability to work and you can't do full-time work, you still qualify regardless of the opinions of people who might come up to you and go, yeah, you don't look disabled to me. <laughs> that doesn't matter. It's based on evidence, right? And if you have evidence to show that you can't do full-time work, you can get disability benefits from social security. Yeah, and they used to call it objective medical, right? Like that MRI that you can see that there's a disc problem or there's something that you can actually see right. rather than I just have pain and I can't do. That's a little bit harder with cases like fibromyalgia, but I think sometimes that can even be allowed for a disability claim. So that's, that is interesting that you mentioned that. Um, and thanks for clarifying. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you have a, a master's degree from the London School of Economics. Was economics your first interest? And then you, you ended up getting a law degree. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about that, the schooling track and, and yeah, what your sure. interests were? My undergraduate degree is in economics, but actually at the London School of Economics, which is uh, somewhat poorly named because they have a business school and they have uh, my, uh, my wife actually has a degree in uh, something like architecture uh, and city planning from the London School of Economics. So there's lots of different uh, degree tracks at the London School of Economics. Uh, so the, the name isn't the most accurate name. Uh, my degree there was actually in politics. Uh, and then after that, uh, after the one year in London, I came back uh, to the United States and went to law school. and. I had an idea of some things I wanted to do when I was in law school. Social security and disability were nowhere on my radar at that point. 
But like I said, uh, I came out of law school and passed the bar in 2008. And at that point, I got a real solid education on macroeconomics uh, and how, you know, whatever you were thinking you might want to do, you can't necessarily be picky in a spiraling economy. Yes, for those of you younger folks who weren't around or adulting in 2008, that's when the uh, stock market took a big crash. That we had this whole economic uh, chaos that happened in 2008, which is when I started actually investing because it was just everything was so low and we did have some money to invest. And I think that was a good a, time. That was a great time to start investing. And so. Yeah, so that you got kind of thrown into this field. Did you like your work when you did it? Because you've done it for you've done it for a long time. Yeah, I I was with Social Security from 2010 to 2021, and I had really good training when I started. Uh, we had a great training program, lots of really good trainers, and everyone that was with me at the start of that program was all brand new. So we were all in the same place. We had a lot of the same questions. But uh, I had a, a six-week training initially, and then that was followed by uh, really like on-the-job training where the whole first year, it was go slow, take your time, ask lots of questions, don't worry about how many cases you're doing. And I took full advantage of that. And I was just like the question machine. What about this? What about this? Could we find this person disabled? What about this impairment? How does this work? And really that even after the first year, the social security regulations are so complicated, so chaotic mm -hmm. that even in the latter half of my tenure, I would see things that I hadn't seen before. And I'd have to go talk to someone and say, I've never seen this scenario. What, what do we do with this? But of course, the longer I was there, the more other people, particularly newer employees were coming up to me and saying, what about this? How does this work? How, what, are these, what is the evidence for this particular impairment? There, there, is, there are ways to prove non-visible impairments. Uh, HIV has blood testing. A breathing impairment has lung capacity testing. As you're aware, mental health impairments have a variety of tests uh, based on what the impairment is and the DISM criteria. So and we get, as lawyers, we do get limited medical training because we have to know how to read those medical records and how to understand them, how to know what that evidence is proving so that we can say whether this evidence proves the legal requirements of the impairment. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there, it's, it's very chaotic. <laughs> Just to, to, to put it, 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 your show matches, the, the name of your show matches Social Security's regulations perfectly because there's so many different impairments and there's so many different elements and so many different types of evidence and so many different judicial personalities. And of course, nobody has one impairment, right? People have combinations of impairments. So now I need to look at the back injury and the lung capacities because they're a smoker and now they've got depression. So I need to consider their mental health. And you got to put all that together and decide if that person meets the definition of disability. And it can be really, really confusing. And so that takes, as you can imagine, that takes a lot of training to really be able to understand how to put all that together. 
And so if a person thinks that they may qualify for disability, what sort of evidence do you actually need to come up with? Or if a person says, uh, I have um, something, uh, you know, like a back injury, say, because that's pretty common. And, uh, and then they have to go to a doctor or they have to have a bunch of evidence. They have to have preponderance of the evidence. Three that's people right. have to agree. What kind of evidence do you need? So there's, the standard is preponderance of the evidence, which in normal person English just means it has to be more likely than not that you've proven what you say is happening. So in a disability application, you're saying, I'm disabled and can't work, which means I have a medical impairment or impairments that impacts my ability to work. And that's been the case for 12 continuous months or will be the case for 12 months or is likely to result in death. And to make it even more complicated and confusing, you can be found disabled solely based on your medical situation, or if that's not sufficient, also considering your vocational situation. In other words, if you meet certain medical criteria, we don't even ask if you can work, we just presume it. If you don't meet those criteria, then we say, okay, well, with what you do have and what you have shown us, is it the case that you can't do any full-time work? And to even go even more complicated, once you get over 50, the rules change in favor of the claimant. And it's a little bit easier to prove disability because we recognize that it's just harder for people over 50 to transition to other types of work. Mm. As far as what you need to prove, that's, of course, different based on what impairment or impairments you have. But I talk about two important things in the book. One is... I explain that different kinds of impairments, whether they be physical, uh, physical, visible, physical, non-visible, mental and potentially treatable, or mental health and permanent, things like neurocognitive disorder or intellectual disability. I explain the different ways that the agency treats those different impairments and the different kinds of evidence you would want to look for for different kinds of impairments. The other thing is we just have to acknowledge the reality that when someone's not working and they don't have health insurance, it can be nearly impossible to get the care that they need and to get good documentation. When you can't afford to see a provider, how are you supposed to get evidence to show that you can't work, right? You can't work, so you have no insurance, you can't go see someone, so you don't have evidence. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard a judge in a hearing say, well, you don't have evidence, I guess you're okay, which <sighs> makes absolutely no sense. All not having evidence shows is that you had a hard time getting evidence. It doesn't show that you're medically okay, right? Yeah. So I also provide information in the book about ways you can think outside the box to get the care you need and the documentation for your disability claim. Because as you pointed out, no one thinks about this. All people think is, I'm hurt, I'm in pain, I'm injured, I don't feel right, I can't work full time. I can't go to work eight hours today and do it again tomorrow. But people don't know what to do from there. And that's why I wrote my book, Social mm -hmm. Security Disability Revealed, because I wanted to put all of this information in one place. What is the disability system? How does Social Security determine you're disabled? what kind of evidence you would need, what happens if you win, and what happens if you lose. 
because bad things can happen either way. Mm -hmm. And and how do you get someone to help you with that process? So I wanted all of that information in one book. Um, in in your words, I wanted to try and make it less chaotic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to share my screen here with you. And uh, so you're on quite a few different sites. Your book is, and uh, this is the Amazon site. And uh, it does have a really good look inside of the book. But also through your website, you give quite a bit of information about the book and even a, a table of content that, that you give uh, as well. So I appreciated yeah. uh, seeing that on, on your website. And the reason is people have all kinds of different reasons for wanting to read the book. It might be I'm starting the process and I've heard SSDI and SSI and I don't know what that means. It might be the questions you've been asking, which is what kind of evidence do I need? Maybe you've already lost your case and your question is, how do I appeal? Or you've won your case and you have benefits and now the agency's trying to take them away, which Mm -hmm. absolutely happens. And so, yeah, that's why I put that list of topics and the table of contents on the website, because wherever someone is in their journey, or maybe it's not even them, maybe it's a family member, maybe the person is a mental health practitioner, such as yourself, and wants to know, What are my patients going through? How can I help my patients? I wanted all of these different possible readers of the book, consumers of this information to know, oh, okay, that was my question. That's what I need to know. Yes, it's in the book. And also where to go to get help, right? Do you need to get an attorney? And what sort of doctor do you need to go to or medical provider do you need to go to to get that evidence that you need for your case, all that stuff is covered in in your book. And and what's actually more important, so for the claimant, they need to know what kind of sources do I need to see, but they also need to know what do I need to get that source to give me as far as evidence, what objective evidence, what observations, but also what kind of medical opinion? Because a lot of doctors think, well, I'll just write my patient is disabled or my patient can't work. And that's not a medical opinion, but the, but medical sources don't understand that. They'll write, my patient can't work. My patient is disabled. Here, go give this to Social Security. You'll get approved. I can't tell you how many medical opinions I've seen that say that, but for a Social Security judge, this person is disabled isn't a medical opinion because who decides if someone's disabled? Mm-hmm. The judge. It's a legal finding, not a medical finding. And so the first thing, before even considering that opinion, the first thing the judge will do is ignore that opinion. It's not an opinion. It's basically useless. So doctors have to know what to put in their opinions in order for them to be considered valid and useful. But since they don't know, unfortunately, that really falls on the patient or their support system to say to the source, to the medical source, here's what I need you to put in the medical opinion. I need you to specifically say how many hours a day I can stand and walk, Mm -hmm. how much weight I can lift. Can I get through an eight hour day without needing to lie down? Or would I need to lie down during the course of an eight hour day? Doctor, Mm -hmm. medical opinions have to get really specific. And because your doctor probably doesn't understand that, unfortunately, it's you, the patient that has to tell them that and and tell them what information you need 
But fortunately, if you've read the book, you'll know that and you can get a really good solid medical opinion that would be really good evidence in your case. Well, is that why so many people are denied is because of those medical opinions are just opinions. They're, they don't really know what to say and what information to give to the judge who is going to render that legal uh, opinion. Yeah, that's basically what's happening in, in most cases at the initial level when someone first applies. They don't have great medical records. It's hard to get your medical records in the United States. People see lots of different sources. Some medical records are in paper. Sometimes a doctor will say, I'll fax these to you like it's 1986. Sometimes they'll say, come in and get them. Sometimes there will be a charge. Oh, you want your medical records? It's $58 and people can't afford that mm -hmm. when they're not working and have no money. So there's all kinds of different reasons. Our, our medical record keeping system in the United States is chaos. Our healthcare system is chaos. So people aren't seeing the right people or they're not seeing enough sources or they can't get those records. And a lot of people think, well, I know I'm disabled and can't work. I'll just get my records from my doctors. I'll, you know, put them in a, a manila envelope and I'll hand them to the person at the social security office. When can I expect my first check? But that's not how it works because if those records aren't sufficient to prove that you can't do any full-time work for a full 12 month period, you're not going to be approved. And that's why the vast majority of people are not approved at the initial level. Now, when they get to the hearing level, a lot of times people have a representative. They've already had two denials. So now they're looking at their records a lot more thoroughly and seriously. They're filling in gaps in their records. That's when people go to their medical specialists and say, I've been denied twice. I need to take this more seriously and I need really good medical opinions. I need you to tell the judge not only that I can't work, but specifically why I can't work. Records do tend to get better and more solidly developed, particularly with the help of an attorney or non-attorney representative. And so sometimes at the hearing level, the pay rate does go up. But yeah, it's a problem with the evidence, with the medical opinions, with the fact that initially people don't know the information in this book and don't have a representative helping them. And when you don't know what's going on, when you don't know all the reasons that the deck is totally stacked against you in this process, you're not going to have a very high chance of success. Um, one thing that you asked is, do people need a representative? And my answer is, you don't technically need one, but I highly recommend that you have one. As I said earlier, I wrote almost 2,000 decisions. I have a really high sample size to make these judgments on. And I can tell you from seeing lots of cases where people did not get a representative, they chose to DIY a very serious legal process where tens of thousands of dollars was on the line. Compare that to the cases where people went ahead and got a representative, it's night and day. The amount of medical evidence, the record development, the medical opinions, everything is just so much better and looks slightly less chaotic when there is a representative involved. So my two main themes are educate yourself 
because there's no substitute for you knowing the process, how your evidence is going to be looked at, what kinds of evidence and opinions you need, but also you're not an expert as the claimant. So go hire a social security disability representative who knows the law. They know the judges, they know what happens at the hearing. It's really a team effort between the claimant working with their representative to present the evidence in the best light possible. Well, and so uh, I, I assume such representatives cost money. And if you're not working, you may not have that much money. So there's the question of, can I afford a representative? And what if the representative just won't, won't take my case? What if, what if they won't take me? Uh, may, maybe I can't afford them, but they just won't take me. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So there's two different issues there. The first is, uh, every claimant, almost every claimant can afford a representative. And really, you can't afford not to have one because it's just too serious a process. There's too much in the way of benefits on the line. And it doesn't make sense to try and do this on your own. Mm -hmm. If you wouldn't fill your own cavity or do your own heart surgery, you probably shouldn't do your own legal proceeding, right? Um, the good news is Social Security has very strict rules for how the representatives get paid, and you don't have to pay them anything up front. And you may have seen a commercial on TV like, no fee unless you win. And that's actually true. They won't get paid a fee unless you have a favorable outcome. And even if you have a favorable outcome, they only get paid from your past due benefits. And that's benefits that you were entitled to receive, but didn't because the process just took so darn long. Mm -hmm. So they don't get any of your future benefits. They don't get any of your Medicare benefits. It's only your past due benefits and only up to 25% of that. Oh, wow. So it's a very limited amount. And there's a cap on that, which is $6,000 going up to $7,200 uh, later this year. But the thing is, that's great that there's a cap, but what that also means is they're not making very much on each case, right? And what that means is it turns it into a volume business for the attorneys and non-attorney representatives. Mm -hmm. What that means is they have a lot of clients, and that's why it's so important that the claimants educate themselves. You can't rely on your attorney for everything. They'll look at your case for a little bit, or they'll have a paralegal in their office do it, They'll show up to your hearing 30 minutes early to have a quick chat with you. They'll be at your hearing to advocate for you, but you are not their only client. They're not making a lot on your case, so they have to have a lot of cases. And so you really need to understand the terminology, how Social Security makes decisions, how they look at evidence. You need to be able to have a conversation with your representative using social security terminology and rules and procedures, which you'll learn in my book. And then you can have a really effective conversation with your representative and work with them to present your case. The other question is what happens if a representative won't take your case? This does unfortunately happen. There's a couple different reasons. One might be they don't think there's going to be back benefits. Uh, past due benefits, so they can't get a fee. Um, the good news with that is sometimes if you just wait, you know, if your case gets denied and then it's another year before you're hearing, 
as time builds up, then you'll have past due benefits and a representative might be able to get a fee. But there are some kinds of cases where there's just no fee for the attorneys and non-attorney representatives. And the good news is, the bad news is it's hard to find someone to represent you. And a lot of people do have to do those on their own. And the agency understands that. And they understand why, if you have that kind of case, you might not be represented. But there are a lot of nonprofits around the country that will try and help people who have those kinds of cases that the private bar won't be able to handle. And uh, so if you're in that situation, and, th and those are more rare, but if you're in that situation, there might be help for you. Otherwise, as I said, the judges and uh, staff attorneys, they understand why you're on your own in those situations. And so they will try and do their best to be as impartial as possible and to do everything they can to help you get the evidence that you need in that situation. Yeah, I, I appreciate you saying that. And I think this is a good time for me to show your website because it does have a lot of useful information on it. As we said before, uh, you can go to the website and you can see part of the, the book here. And I'll go ahead and share the screen with you now. Um, it actually has the book description and uh, a lot of really useful information. In fact, there's quite a bit of text here for if you're in interested. And then um, there's also, as I mentioned before, uh, there, the table of contents is also on the website. So this website is really is super helpful. I'll try and share my screen and show the table of contents here. And yeah, yeah. I wanted people to understand who I am, where I'm coming from, why I have some authority to speak about this, and why I wrote the book, and then, of course, the topics that are in the book, because I wanted this to be a way for people to understand what the process is, how the process works, what kind of barriers will be put up in their way. For example, how judges are literally incentivized to deny claims because the agency doesn't like the pay rate to get too high. So they make sure that a certain amount of claims will be denied. Um, you know, you, you think you're getting an individualized look at your case, but unfortunately, that judge may have actually decided to deny your case before your hearing even begins. And that's really unfortunate that I explain why that happens in the book, but also the second half of the subtitle, it's not just why it's hard to access benefits, but then of course, what you can do about it. When all these barriers and these things that you can't control are put up in your way, what are the things that you can do that you can control to have a, a positive influence on this process? And that's why, and exactly why I created my podcast is because there's so many things that are chaotic, as you say, in this world. And I think that some organized fashion and understanding and uh, being able to do something about it, because the second part of the book does say, what can you do about it? Right. And then there's so it gives you a sense of hope that you can calm any kind of chaos that you have about disability and this whole process. Is that correct? Yeah. And part of the chaos, part of the reason for chaos is the agency wants it to be chaotic. This is no accident. 
they make it really easy to pay into the system, right? Most people are employees. Their social security tax comes out of their paycheck before they even get their paycheck. So social security is making it really easy, just like any insurance company, to pay into the system and then really difficult to get money out when you need it. And so that's part of the reason for the chaos is they want to make it hard. They don't want everybody to be taking money out of the system or the social security system would collapse, right? So right. Um, so they make it really difficult. But part of the, the way to calm that chaos is through education. Just understanding why the social security disability system exists, its history, what the programs are, why they're there, how decisions are made, before you even start talking to your doctors or getting a representative, just knowing all of that will provide some level of comfort and some level of empowerment. Okay, this isn't chaotic to me anymore because now I understand these things. And now that I understand the system, I know how to navigate it. And you know, it, it's like when you first are given driving directions to go somewhere that you've never been. It looks really chaotic, but you drive there one time and then you think like, I don't need directions anymore. I, now I know how to get there. I know where the markers are. I know I make a right at that building and a left at that billboard. And once you understand something, it's just not scary or chaotic or overwhelming, at least as much as it was in the past. And so I think if nothing else, that's the best reason to get and read the book is, you know, you, you've got a couple thousand dollars per month for many, potentially a couple decades. You're talking tens of thousands of dollars in benefits on the line. Don't just flip a coin, right? Don't just go into this completely blind. Know what you're getting into. Know how the system works so that you can present the best possible case. Social Security does approve a lot of cases. And I wrote a lot of favorable decisions. But those decisions were written in a favorable way because those people had really good evidence, really good medical opinions. Their, their medical records told a particular story and they, they explained really well why this person can't work. And that's what you have to do in order to be found disabled by the Social Security Administration. But you have to know how to tell that story. Yeah, because uh, like you said, it, you made it kind of sound like a conspiracy. Inherently, they don't really want to approve you, right? So they make the system hard, difficult to manage, and uh, chaotic. Uh, and so then this conspiracy happens possibly behind the scenes, which uh, I love conspiracy theories, by the way. I mean, part of it is a conspiracy, but the thing is, it's a known conspiracy. That's what every insurance company is, right? They take in more than they pay out. And social security disability insurance, uh, it's really no different. They have to take in more than they're paying out. So there's money in the social security trust fund for retirees and for future beneficiaries. Right. And so it's, it's an open secret. Let's put it that way, right? Mm -hmm. They're not approving everyone. In fact, they're not approving uh, half the people. And for the other half, the people who are being approved, it's not at the initial determination. 
Um, mm -hmm. Some people are approved at the initial determination and some people have to fight years for their benefits. Yeah. But ultimately, getting those benefits is because you put together a solid record and a solid story so that that judge, uh, even if they're a low paying judge, some judges pay 20% of their cases, but there is still one out of five, right? Even for that low paying judge. And that's the thing is even if you get a judge who's really hard to deal with, who doesn't pay a lot of cases, you got to know how to present your case so that you basically leave that judge with no choice but to be that one out of five. You want that judge to say, this is a great medical record. I got medical opinions. I deny a lot of cases, but I can't deny this one. Right. And uh, But you have to know how to do that, right? Mm -hmm. And it is a chaotic system. It's a chaotic world. So <laughs> educating yourself, having a good representative, knowing what you have to do, and then putting that game plan into action and doing it. Yeah. Well, you said something earlier that intrigues me, and that is you could be approved for benefits and then later on denied. How does that even happen? Yeah. So you could be approved and then have those benefits taken away. And the reason is Social Security benefits are not intended to be permanent. They're not intended to go all the way through retirement age. They really are intended for anyone under the age of 50 to be temporary. If you're over the age of 50, Social Security will, it's rare that they're going to go back and re-examine your situation. Uh, just because you're so close to retirement age, it might not make financial sense for them to spend the money and time and effort to do that. But if you're under the age of 50 and you're found disabled, that's not intended to be a long-term thing. It's They're intended to be benefits for you to get while you're getting treatment so that you can go back to work. And so Social Security does something called a continuing disability review, a CDR. Of course, I talk about this in the book and I explain what these are. But anyone who's been found disabled will understand what these are. You get these forms from Social Security, could be in a year, could be in three years, could be in seven years. But almost certainly, unless you have like intellectual disability or a neurocognitive disorder, something that's really considered permanent. From everyone else, though, you're going to get these forms and they're going to say, tell us about your medical treatment. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your medical situation. Show us your medical records from the date we approved you until today. So you can't stop seeing medical sources. You can't stop getting documentation because Social Security is going to go back later and say, we want to know if you're still disabled or maybe now with now that you've been getting benefits and treatment, maybe you can work now. We're going to send you to see our doctor that we pay for. What do you think the doctor that Social Security pays for? What do you think that opinion is going to say? Right. Right. When Social Security is sending you to that doctor to see if you're not disabled anymore and they're paying that doctor, surprise, a lot of times that opinion says you're not disabled and you can work. Mm -hmm. And so you have to understand that process and know that that's coming. And so many people get their benefits and then they get caught off guard a few years later when they get this paperwork and they don't have great documentation. And now they start scrambling to go see doctors and to get opinions. But by that point, it might be too late because now you have this gap of a few years when you weren't getting treatment and Social Security will say, oh, so you stopped getting treatment right after we approved you. Seems like maybe you didn't really need it, huh? 
And yeah, if they find that you can go back to work, they'll take away your benefits. Wow. Or if you That's go back, crazy. or if you go choose to go back to work, even part time, and you earn just a little bit too much, they'll say, looks like you can work now because it's a dollar amount that matters, not the number of hours you're working. So you could work mm-hmm. 10 or 15 or 20 hours a week and accidentally earn too much. And social security terminates the benefits that you worked so hard to get. So you really have to know how the system works before you're hearing, but you also have to know what happens when you get denied. You also have to know what happens when you get approved. So you don't end up in this situation because believe it or not, it can get even worse. Because if you were getting benefits and Social Security decided you weren't entitled to them, you now end up with an overpayment where you owe Social Security money. (laughs) So you went into this trying to get benefits and you come out being the one who owes the government money. Surprise. And you don't want to owe the government money. They have a lot of power. Wow. So yes, please check out uh, uh, Spencer's book. I'll share the screen again. And it's called Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access. So there's the problem, uh, benefits, and what you can do about it. There is the solution to the chaos, for sure. Uh, Wow. So such a lot of information here. I do know you also, you you are on social media. I'll go ahead and put your Facebook uh, page and that's Abitions Publishing. That's on uh, Facebook. And it's actually a really cool page. It's, um, it will tell you how many interviews he has been on. He's been on quite a few. And uh, let's see if I can pull it up here. Yeah, and uh, we also uh, provide some tips. And, uh, of course, uh, things for people to think about. Um, like, for example, uh, that one that you're showing right now, people in the entertainment industry can be found disabled. You, we, we sometimes think of warehouse workers, construction workers, like we talked about earlier, people with back impairments, right? Teachers, doctors, other lawyers, people in the entertainment industry, restaurant servers, cashiers, anyone can be hit with a medical impairment. And it's often unexpected, not always, sometimes it's a chronic condition that deteriorates over time. whether it's that or whether it's unexpected and it happens very suddenly, people are in, are hit with all kinds of medical impairments for all different reasons at all different points in their lives and their careers. And so that's why it's really important for people to understand that you've been paying into the social security system, even if you didn't know you were, and even if you had no idea there was a disability system, there is, and you've paid into it. So if you can't work, it's a really good idea to familiarize yourself with how that system works. Um, Mm -hmm. Real quick, just because you may have some uh, audience who have vision impairments, I just wanna say the website out loud, it's visionspublishing.com, B-I-S-H-I-N-S, publishing.com. Facebook and Instagram at Visions Publishing, Twitter at Visions Pub, and, Again, the book is Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It. It's a chaotic system, 
And the best way to calm that chaos with regard to social security disability is to educate yourself on the process. It's going to be somewhat confusing. I tried to break things down into normal person English to the greatest extent that I can using translations and regular English and examples. And here's what they mean and here's what they don't mean, things like that. You might still not understand everything, but that's okay because you're at least going to be exposed to everything. Things are going to be shown to you that you didn't know existed. And I'm hoping that I wrote, if I've succeeded in my goal, you'll understand most of what's in this book. Because again, I take complicated things like residual functional capacity and I break it down into normal person English, which is, ah, that just means what you can do when your impairments are considered. So to talk about what you can do with your impairments taken into account, we say residual functional capacity. And you got to know what those things mean to have right. an effective conversation with your representative. And so you know what's happening at your hearing and what the judge is talking about at your hearing. So calm that chaos, read the book, understand what's going on. And that way you can advocate for yourself because it's your case and there's no substitute for you advocating for your own situation because those are your disability benefits. Well said. And yes, please visit uh, the website, visionspublishing.com. Uh, there's that Facebook page we were just on. And you can find that at Visions Publishing. And then we've got Instagram at Visions Publishing and Twitter at Visions Pub. Sounds like a brewery or something. I know. <laughs> publishing, was, publishing was too long. But if, if the whole educating people about social security thing doesn't work out. I can, open, <laughs> I, I, I can open a brewery, right? Right. As long as your residual functional capacity allows you to be able to do that kind of work, right? <laughs> ah, see, that's what education does is it allows you to understand and use terminology in everyday life. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Uh, I appreciate you and what you do. And everybody check out Spencer's book. It's um, really uh, a good read. And uh, thank you so much again for being on Calming the Chaos today, Spencer. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to Calming the Chaos podcast. If the information in this podcast has been helpful, please consider subscribing and share it with your friends. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Music, Spotify, and on YouTube. You can also go to our podcast website at www.calmingthechaospodcast.com, where you can listen to all Calming the Chaos podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to sharing my next podcast episode with you. In the meantime, take care.